Our text this morning is John chapter 15 through verse 17. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that bears fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. You are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me, and I in him, bears much fruit. For without me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is cast out as a branch and is withered, and they gather them and throw them into the fire, and they are burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, you will ask what you desire, and it shall be done for you. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, so you will be my disciples. As the Father loved me, I also have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may remain in you, and that your joy may be full. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, than to lay down one's life for his friends. You are my friends if you do whatever I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for a servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends, for all things that I heard from my Father I have made known to you." You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should remain, that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give you. These things I command you, that you love one another. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we know that your Son is the way, the truth, and the light. Father, as we come to your word now, we ask that you would shine that light on your word and on our heart. May we find your truth there, and may we walk in your way as a result of it. We pray these things in your son's name, and amen. amen. So we've been working through uh, the Gospel of John in the, in the CCD first service, and since I'm uh, pinch-hitting here for Toby, you get where we are in the Gospel of John for this morning's sermon. However, I, I do think that the text uh, stands on its own as well, so we should be just fine. Um, now, there's an irony here that... Um, the way this message is put together, because um, if you if you know about the Gospel of John, then right now we're in the middle of what's referred to as Jesus's farewell discourse. Okay, he it, it's actually in the Gospel of John, it's the longest sustained teaching uh, that Jesus gives, where he's just he's got one lesson and it goes for a few chapters uh, in a row. Um, it's it's the night that he's going to be betrayed. He's already had the Lord's Supper. The, the Judas has left to go and betray him, and he's left there with his disciples, and he's giving them this exhortation to basically prepare them for what's about to happen. He gives them this exhortation, and in a little bit he's going to pray for them, and then they'll go out, and, and he'll be arrested. So this is his farewell discourse. He's getting ready to say goodbye. But the weird thing about the farewell discourse is the whole thing is about saying goodbye, but at the very center of the farewell discourse, the thing that he really spends a lot of time on is how he's going to remain with them and they will remain with him. The, the, um, the word there that is translated abide a bunch of times in this passage, uh, the word meno just simply means to remain. I believe just in verses 4, four through 16, that verse appears 11 times. Remain, 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 remain. And he's also saying goodbye. So there is this real kind of irony in what's happening. Jesus is going away, but somehow there's something that's happening that even though Jesus is going away, 
it means that, that he, he will remain with them and they can remain with him. They can abide with him. Now, throughout the Old Testament, um, one of the main images that the Bible used uh, to describe Israel was that of a vine. Um, Psalm 80 is a great example of this. Uh, I'm starting at verse 8. You have brought a vine out of Egypt. You have cast out the nations and planted it. You prepared room for it and caused it to take deep root, and it filled the land. The hills were covered with its shadow and the mighty cedars with its boughs. She sent out her boughs to the sea and her branches to the river. He's, he's describing there how Israel was this branch that, that God went and, and got in Egypt and brought it to this land, and he prepared the land for this vine that he was going to plant. And Israel is that vine. Israel is God's vine. It's interesting, like at this time, um, Herod's temple, huge temple, you know, kind of the center of the, the Jewish faith at this time. And, and you've got this huge temple, and the front of it is all uh, gold. And across the front of it where it was, was an enormous golden vine that was put across the front of the temple that went hundreds of feet in the air and, and, and comes back down. And it, is, it has these um, uh, grape clusters that hang from it, solid gold grape clusters that are the, the size of a, a grown man. So there's this huge vine across the front of the temple. And it's to symbolize the fact that Israel is God's vine. We are the vine. And when you come here to worship, you are a part of that vine. But there was a problem. And, and, and it was in, in Isaiah 5, um, Isaiah starts to describe God's frustration with his vine. He put all this work into growing this vine, but the problem was um, he, he put all this work into, into getting this vine, setting it up in an ideal location, giving it everything it needed, and yet the vine would not produce fruit. Uh, in Ezekiel 15, uh, Ezekiel picks up the same critique. Ezekiel 15, starting at verse 1. Then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, how is the wood of the vine any better than any other wood, the vine branch, which is among the trees of the forest? Is wood taken from it to make an object, or can men make a peg from it to hang any vessel on? Instead, it is thrown into the fire for fuel. The fire devours both ends of it, and its middle is burned. It is useful for any, is it useful for any work? You see, the thing is, a fruit tree if it doesn't produce fruit, at least it produces wood that you can do something with. An apple tree, there's apple wood, and you can actually work with apple wood. But a vine, if it doesn't produce fruit, what is the point of a vine? Can you do anything with a vine other than produce fruit? And if your vine is not producing fruit, what's the point of the vine? The only thing you can do with it is throw it in the fire and burn it. Right? That, that's the only thing that a fruitless vine can be used for. Uh, the vine, then, is useless apart from the fruit it produces. So there's no point to a fruitless vine except for kindling. But what Israel failed to be, Israel, the vine that is not producing fruit, what Israel failed to be, Jesus came to actually be. Jesus came to be that vine. Remember that in, in John, um, if you, as you read through John, one of the things that stands out is the number of times that Jesus delivers what's referred to as his I am statements. There are a bunch of places in, in John where Jesus says, I, I am one thing or another. I am the bread of life. 
John 6. I am the light of the world, John 8. I am the door of the sheep, John 10. I am the resurrection and the life, John 11. I am the good shepherd, in John 10. I am the way, the truth, and the life, uh, John 14. And I am the true vine, John 15, where we just began. This is the, the, the fin- final I am statement. I am the thing that Israel could not be. I am the vine. Not just the vine. He says, I am the true vine. I'm the real vine. I'm the vine that you've actually been waiting for. He is the true vine. And the true vine is the vine that produces real fruit. Now, he, t- he tells us in this, in this section that the fruit that has been expected of the vine is love. Verse 12, this is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. The, f- the fruit that the vine was supposed to produce is love. And it's, what's interesting is next, uh, in the next verse, in verse 13, he describes what perfect fruit would look like. If love is the fruit, what would perfect fruit look like? Verse 13, greater love has no one than this, than to lay down one's life for his friends. Okay, so the commandment is love. The the fruit that the vine is supposed to produce is love. And perfect love is love that actually lays down its life for his friends. Okay, so Jesus is the vine. He is the true vine. And he is the vine that produces the perfect fruit, perfect love, the, the love that's actually going to lay down his life for his friends. Jesus is the true vine that Israel was supposed to be. And then what we see in John 15 is Jesus is that that perfect vine and that we are commanded to live inside of that vine. He is the perfect obedience. He is the perfect love. And we're supposed to live inside of that obedience, inside of that love. Verse 5, he says, I am the vine, you are the branches. So I'm the vine, you're the branches. You live inside of me. Or, or verse four, he says, abide in me, live in me, abide in me, remain in me. We're supposed to abide in Jesus in order to remain in him. We should be connected to him the way that branches are connected to a vine. Or Paul will do the same thing with an olive tree in Romans 11, where your branches are supposed to be connected to that tree trunk. And here's the thing that, that Jesus is trying to communicate with this image. The vine and the branch and, and its branches that are connected to it, they, they have this living circulatory system, right? There's life that flows through the vine and into the branches. The life that is in the vine flows into the branch, and that life that's flowing from the vine into the branch is what produces the fruit that is on the branch, okay? It flows through and produces that fruit. And in the same way, the fruitfulness of Jesus, his perfect obedience, or more specifically, his perfect love, flows into believers that are abiding in him, and it produces in them that fruit of love. Okay? His love flows through you, and it produces that perfect fruit of love. Your fruit, then, is his fruit, which is why he can say in verse 8, By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit, so you will be my disciples. The Father is glorified when you produce fruit because your fruit is his fruit. It's his life flowing through you, producing that fruit. Or verse 4, abide in me and I in you. As a branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. Your fruit is generated by remaining in him and having that life flow through you to produce that obedience. So Jesus is the vine and we are his branches. But we also learn that this vine is regularly pruned. 
Okay, the vine is pruned. Uh, Verse 2, every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Okay, so he comes along and branches that are not bearing fruit, he prunes, he removes, he cuts out. Uh, Verse 6, if anyone does not abide in me, he is cast out as a branch and is withered. And they gather them and throw them into the fire and they are burned. It's interesting if you go back to verses 2 and 3 and look at those two for a second. Um, Verse 2, the the Greek word for pruning, every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. Every branch that bears fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. That that verb there for pruning, the the root of it, um, it actually, if we were to um, translate it literally, it wouldn't be he prunes it. It would be he cleans it. He cleans it. It's just that when a vine dresser cleans a vine, our word for that is pruning. That's how you do, how you clean is you go through and you cut things out. But literally there, the word is, is clean. Uh, I think we get our word catharsis from, from that Greek root. But then when you look at verse 3, you are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. It's the same word. So when he says um, God comes along, the Father comes along, and the branch, he, he cleans it. All right, he prunes it, he cleans it, and then he says to the disciples, you are already clean, you are already pruned. I think it's interesting there because <clears throat> the question in my mind is, well, okay, how is it, how does God prune? What, what is the, the process of pruning? I know what it looks like in the metaphor, in the image, but what does it look like in our lives when, when he's doing that to us? How does God prune? Well, it tells us in verse 3, you are already clean, because of the word which I've spoken to you. The word is what cleans us. The word is what prunes us. The word is what, what makes this, this whole process happen uh, to us. Um, the disciples have been pruned by the word. The word is the father's pruning shears. And when you look at John, you see that John tells his gospel in such a way that kind of highlights that. If you go back to John 6, you see this pruning word uh, in action. Start verse 66. From that time, many of his disciples went back and walked with him no more. Then Jesus said to the twelve, Do you also want to go away? But Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. You see, when you look at John 6, you see Jesus preached the sermon that was really hard to take. It was, it was a hard-to-stomach sermon. And when he gets done with the words, a bunch of people say, That's it, we're out of here, and they leave. But the disciples feel worked over, and he turns to them, and he says, are you going to leave also? Do you want to take off? And they say, where would we go? This is the word of eternal life. And, and, and so it's strange that word simultaneously drives some away, but it causes the disciples to cling, to remain. While others leave, they remain. They they abide uh, with Jesus. The word causes some to abide The word and the preaching of the word causes some to depart, and it draws others even closer. Look at uh, verse 7. If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, you'll ask uh, what you desire, and it shall be done for you. God's word comes to us through Scripture, right? His word abides in us as as we dwell on his word. It abides with us. But then also we respond. Here he says, um, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, you will ask what you desire and it should be done for you. So his words abide in us, but then our words go back to him in prayer. 
It's a, it's a back and forth process where we're hearing from him, we're living in his word, but then we're speaking back to him what's on our heart, what we desire. God's word comes to us through scripture. Our word goes to God through prayer. And this is what a living branch looks like. I mean, I described this branch on the vine with a circulatory system. This is that circulatory system at work. When his word is coming to you and your word is going back to him, that's a branch that is living. Um, that's what spiritual life looks like. If you cut yourself off from this life, if you cut yourself off from Scripture, if you cut yourself off from prayer, then you become a dead branch on the vine, and you don't have that life dwelling in you. Now, in, in gardening, I think the gardening image is so strong here because I, we have a garden, and I like to go out and actually spend time uh, pruning. We're not, we never get to the point of actually eating anything from our garden. It's mostly just the, the planting and the watering early on, and then we get bored of it. But anyhow... I know the pruning part. I don't know the harvesting part, but I can do the pruning metaphor. And, and what I notice is, like, so I have um, the Roma tomato is, I think, my favorite thing. I really like to go out and just spend time when we first plant it and taking care of it uh, in that first month because what has to happen is you have to prune it. The, the branches, when they come off of the stalk, when the branches that are going to bear fruit, there's always a little sucker that grows between the stalk and the, and the branch. There's this little sucker, and if you don't go and pinch it off, it will destroy the fruitfulness of the plant. So you have to go in when it's really young and pinch out all of these little um, growing buds. And, and when you first do that, it's like it looks like you've been weed eating, you know, in the garden afterwards because there's just uh, this kind of pile of all the things that you have pinched off as you as you prune it back. Um, and and there's a reluctance, I notice, to do the work of pruning early on. There's a um, I think it's hard or it's tempting to not prune because of. I think I would think of it as like a, a sentimentality. There's a weird kind of sentimentality, a sort of sappy affection for whatever pops up, where it's like, I don't want to kill that. I don't like, it's, it's this neat little thing that's growing in my garden. I don't want to kill that. I don't want to rip all of the pieces off of it and make it look like this, um, you know, emaciated little stock. And there, there's a sappy affection that doesn't want to do the work of pruning or a lack of faith Okay, it's easier to trust in that in the life that you see, that little stock that you see. It's easier to trust in the life than you see, that you see rather than in the increase that is promised if you cut off that life, right? It, it's easier to trust in this thing that's in front of you than to trust in the thing that will come if you do the hard thing right here. Um, that's what pruning confronts that sentimentality and that lack of faith. And if you hold back, you lose the fruit. If you hold back on the pruning, you lose the fruit down the road. And so it is with the word. God's word is like that. If we hold off in applying the word because of a sentimental affection or because of a lack of faith that the word will do what God said it will do, if we hold off on applying the word, then we lose that fruitfulness down the road. And it's hard because there are times when you're, when you're working from the word and you think, I don't, want, I don't want to say that. I don't want to do that because it just seems like it would be mean. It seems like it would be hard. I think one of the, the examples that, that really um, is striking to me is this question. Are you willing to call abortion murder? Would you call it murder? Um, 
the thing is, that's the Bible's word for it, right? That's the Bible's word for it. But, but um, we're scared of the damage that label might do to a woman who has had an abortion. And so we want to protect her from that word. We want to hold the word back and not let it hit, not realizing, though, that by doing this, we're robbing her of the ability to confess that sin and receive real forgiveness. Confession... Um, literally, etymologically, means to say the same thing as. When we confess is when we take what we've done and we call it by what God calls it. And if we won't call it what God calls it, then we take away the ability to confess. And if we take away the ability to confess, we take away the ability to receive forgiveness. It's a cruelty to not say what it actually, what the Bible actually says. I think we see the same thing. Um, we saw this in the last couple of years with the whole revoice controversy, very um, uh, prominent within evangelical Presbyterian circles, where there's this desire not so much to say that, um, to change our specific theology of homosexuality, but to um, to revoice it, to recast it, to make it so that when we talk about it, we don't talk about it in a way that hurts people's feelings. And we, and we want to be really careful. And so everything is about their sort of rhetorical tone and how you talk about these things. Um, we want to manage the Bible and manage the, and, and kind of hold it back from the offense that it often gives. Now, Scripture offends, right? Scripture offends. Scripture prunes. We need to be ready to let Scripture say what it says and not to be embarrassed by it. Now, on the flip side, you have to be very careful because the admonishment you need is to be, be sure that you don't end up affirming the consequent. That's the logical fallacy or the name for the logical fallacy, affirming the consequent. Um, so if I, in, um, affirming the consequent here would look like this. If um, if scripture sometimes offends and I have offended you, it means that I'm biblical. No, that's, that doesn't follow. I could just be a jerk, right? You can, you can get to offense in a lot of ways other than just scripture. You can be um, a, a, a total chump and offend. So the virtue is not offending people. The virtue is being accurate and clear on what Scripture says and, and unapologetic about what Scripture says. It may cause offense, but it also caused, we saw others to draw near, to remain, to be healed by it. And we want to make sure that we're accurate with what Scripture says. So believers, that is, um, those living branches, those branches on the, on the vine that, that are alive, they receive the word of Christ they live in the word of Christ. And as a result, these branches bear the fruit of obedience. They bear the fruit of obedience. Verse 10, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my father's commandments and abide in his love. Christians obey. They, they keep his commandments. They obey. They do what God has said. The father's pruning produces this obedience in us. It produces this obedience. And the fruit of obedience appears primarily as a love for one another. Look at verse 12. Uh, this is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. Again, verse 17. These things I command you that you love one another. 12 and 17. The commandment is to love. And those make sort of bookends or parentheses around this whole section. Basically saying... When you obey, it will look like love. It will manifest itself as you loving one another. I think that there, there's something that's really, um, I think, profound. It's difficult to conceive and understand, but it is, um, 
it, it makes total sense when you start to live it out. And that is the way the Christian life is divided between two completely different focal points. And they don't compete with each other. They actually complement one another. And what I mean by that is that if you're a Christian, you're captivated by a love of God, a desire to be with him, to communicate with him. To um, and to be with him eternally, to have that uh, eternal uh, inheritance in heaven, and to live that life with him. And so your gaze is entirely heavenward. You're looking up at the Father, you're looking up at the Son, you're looking up at the life that is up there and wanting to be there. And when you want that really, really badly, the way that lives, its, it lives out in your life is you suddenly wanting to love all the people that are around you and to give yourself to the people around you. So it's really weird because you're split in two directions that seems contradictory but actually works perfectly together. You have this horizontal, or sorry, you have a vertical focus, loving God, that works its way out in the way that you love one another. It's something that does not make sense until you're in the gospel and then it makes uh, perfect sense. So we are called to love one another and that is the obedience that Christ is commanding here. If you look back in, in chapter 13, I'm at verse 34. A new commandment I give to you that you love one another as I have loved you that you also love one another. By this all will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. What is the commandment? What is the law? What is the obedience that's required of us that we love one another? And not only that, it's, it's by this you will be known when you love one another. God reveals himself to this world. He proclaims his gospel in this world by having a church that is sitting there loving one another as he has loved us. Okay, Us living out that love is the greatest proclamation for the gospel. Now there's one... There's one um, qualification that I think is really important to make and, and, and particularly where we are in our current culture has to really be um, uh, hammered home again and again. And that is, there's a very big difference between two statements that sound almost identical. Okay, There's the statement, God is love. God is love. He is perfect love. Right? That is who he is. His character is love. God is love. Or what sounds almost like exactly the same thing, love is God. Love is God. God is love. Love is God. It seems like the word is is kind of like an equal sign. So if God is love, then love is God. Should be the same thing. Should be able to go flip it around and have it mean the same thing. But those two statements are diametrically opposed in the way that they are lived out in this world. God is love means God and his character and, and, and the way he is, is the definition of what love looks like. So when we read the law of God, the law is describing the character of what God is like. And that means that the law is describing to us what love looks like. That's why love is the fulfillment of the law. Or how do you summarize the Ten Commandments? Love God, love your neighbor as yourself. It's just love. It really just keeps coming back to love. God is love, and the revelation of his character throughout Scripture is the revelation to us of what love is like. So if you want to know how to love your brother, you, you go to Scripture, and Scripture gives you a description of what love will look like. Okay, so, so God is our definition of love, and it comes down to us, and we understand what that looks like by looking at him, and then we live it out as we love uh, our neighbors, love our brothers. Okay, that's God is love. Love is God is is totally backwards. Love is God. What love is God does is love is God says, okay, what do you feel in your heart right now? 
what natural desires, proclivities, um, what kinds of desires come out of your heart? What are the things that you want? Whatever that is, that's, we're, we're going to say that is love, and that love is God. Okay? So now what you desire, what is in your heart, becomes this transcendent standard that everyone else is, has to answer to. All right? You have made your own perverse desires, lusts, who knows what, into a God that must be worshipped and appeased by everybody. Now, okay, that is diametrically opposed to God is love. God is love takes his character as the definition of love. Love is God takes your um, fallen heart and those desires and projects that onto God and makes that the God that we're all supposed to worship. That's obviously a deep problem, and that's why people will... Um, you'll have people who are not Christians try to impose love is God on Christians because they believe that, that they've got some verse because God is love that you all have to be subjected to. And it's always wonderful when you have an unbeliever try to Jesus juke you where they're saying like, well, you're a Christian and you believe that God is love. So I'm homosexual. That's how I love. So that's God. So you have to submit to that. Right. And, and there, there's this little switch that they're playing. It doesn't work because they have flipped God is love into love is God. So we want to be clear, God is love. And so when we talk about the love that we owe to others, we're talking about the perfect character of God. We owe living that out to one another. That's what we owe uh, to one another. When we labor to live with one another, treating one another with the love that God has commanded us to give, we become a testimony to the world of the truth of the gospel. That becomes a proclamation of the gospel to the world around us. And I want to close with two, two things, two um, points to conclude with. The first is this mystery that's here. The first thing I want to point out is that, that great mystery that John manages to capture here. And the mystery is this. Jesus says that you must produce fruit or you'll be cut out of the vine. Verse 2. Every branch that is in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. Um, and, in, and in verse 6. If anyone does not abide in me, he is cast out as a branch and is withered and they're going to burn him, okay? So Jesus says that you must produce fruit or you'll be cut out of the vine. You'll be, you'll be, you must produce fruit or you'll be cut off, okay? But then Jesus also says that producing that fruit is the result of you being in the vine. Look at verses four and five. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit. For without me you can do nothing. So, so here he's telling us that producing the fruit is the result of being in the vine. Right? The vine is what's producing that fruit in you. So here's the question. Is bearing the fruit, is bearing fruit the condition for remaining in the vine, or is it the result of remaining in the vine? Is it the condition for remaining in the vine, bear fruit or else you be cut off, or is it the result of being in the vine? You bear fruit because you were in the vine, because you remain in the vine. I think the answer to that is yes. That's, that's how you always answer, like when something is too complicated and, and sort of mysterious, then you just say yes. But, but I'm not just being um, cute with that. I think the, the love that's being described here is like the faith that is also required of us. Um, is faith the condition for your salvation, or is it the result of your salvation? Is it the, the condition of your salvation, or is it the result of your salvation? Paul says, for by grace through faith you have been saved, 
uh, excuse me, for by grace you, through faith you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. Okay? You must have faith to be saved, and you're saved because God has given you that faith. Okay? It, it's simultaneously condition and result. The obedient love that is the condition for you to remain in line in the vine is also the love that is flowing to you through that vine. Uh, verse 9. As the Father loved me, I have also loved you. Abide in my love. Okay? He commands that you love, and then he gives you the love that he commands. Okay? He commands you to love, and then he gives you the love that he commands of you. And the two work together. The second thing that I want to um, close with is Jesus' description of the Christian life. His description of the Christian life. It's worth taking a moment to ponder this because he's describing something that is simultaneously very mystical and transcendent, while it is also something that is very practical and imminent. He's describing this spiritual reality that will blow your mind, and he's describing something that is just commonplace and right in front of you all the time. It's the life that you're supposed to be living every single day. Um, Jesus has been describing the way in which he, through his, though his physical presence is departing, will actually be present to believers in a more profound way. Remember I said this is his farewell discourse. He's leaving, and he's describing a more profound and real way in which he will remain and be with you. Okay, This is a, a real mystery. Look at um, chapter 14, verse 23. Jesus answered and said to him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. He is going to come and live with you, even though he's going away. He's going to depart. Um, verse 15, um, he says this, No longer do I call you servants, for a servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all things that I heard from my Father, I have made known to you. Jesus is describing the indwelling that will be made possible by the coming of the Holy Spirit as a fundamental promotion of God's people from servant to friend. All right? there, there is a, a fundamental transformation in the relationship between God's people and God. All right? The vine is going to be the fruit-bearing vine that is indwelled by God himself. Uh, the temple that was, um, you know, we, we talked about this in some of the earlier John passages, where when you have the coming of the Holy Spirit descending like fire um, on the believers, when every time you built the temple, the tabernacle and the temple, you had the Holy Spirit descend upon it. At Pentecost, the Spirit then descends on the believers because believers are the temple and he is indwelling us. He used to live in his temple. He now dwells in you. God is coming to make his home with you. He's been promoted from servant to friend. And the fact that Jesus is departing does not mean that he's getting more distant. He's actually getting closer because he is going to indwell his believers. The spiritual life that Jesus is describing is a profound spiritual reality that when we live like that, it becomes a powerful witness to the world. God indwelling you and living out this glorious life of love. It produces glory, verse 8, by this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit. Okay, It produces this glory. When he lives in you and you bear that fruit, the Father is, is receiving glory from that. It produces glory. It produces in you fullness of joy. Verse 11, these things I have spoken to you that my joy remain, may remain in you and that your joy may be full. It produces this glorious joy in your life when you are living this kind of spiritual life. 
um, he, is, he has been describing this um, in, uh, through, throughout this, this section, this fundamental promotion that you're about to receive. And the life is described by Jesus, I think, in two really big categories. The first is laboring to live in his word. Laboring to live in his word. The, the role that his word plays here is just really important to understand. We need to be laboring to live in his word. This means reading his word. It means attending to the preaching of his word. It means praying his word back to him. It means this constant conversation that you live inside of where you're hearing from him and he is hearing from you. That's the the life that I was describing earlier that's flowing through you where you're hearing from him and he is hearing from you. It's living in his word or abiding in his word. Um, I, my, my best example for this that I, that I can think of is the way, so my, my, the hearing aids that I wear, it, they have this really cool um, function that a lot of people don't know about, which is that they're on Bluetooth, which means my phone can run through my hearing aids. So people won't know it, but I can be listening to my podcasts or whatever it is I feel like. I can also take phone calls through uh, my, my phone, through the hearing aids. You just put your phone in your pocket right there, and I, I'll, I can have conversations all the time, and nobody knows that I'm on the phone because you, you can't tell. But when I go traveling, so I'll go on some long trip, and I'll be away from my wife, so I'll call my wife and, and just put her in my pocket, and in we might not be having a conversation. We're just like with each other. And I'll be in an airport in Phoenix, you know, and we'll be on the phone with each other for two hours straight. And there might be 20 or 30 minutes of that where we're not talking at all. We're just with each other. And it's really weird. It's, I know it's, it's very strange, but it's like a way to stay with my wife when I'm, when I'm gone. And so you can, you can have this strange relationship that way. You have that only at a much more profound level with God right? You don't need Bluetooth in order to have that uh, with God. He's indwelling you, and at any moment, you have the possibility to have an ongoing conversation to just be with him, to just truly be with him because of his indwelling. And that is the life that is in you when you are in that branch, when you're in that vine. That life is in you, and it's lived out by you, first of all, being tuned to his word, giving priority and time to his word, and then being willing to actually just speak back to him in prayer, right? He, he, he describes it, um, uh, verse 7, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, you will ask what you desire and it should be done for you. You're supposed to be in this place where you're, where you're immersed in his word, it's rolling around in your head, and you're speaking back to him the things that those that, that word is producing, or the desires that that word is producing in you, where you're saying, this word makes me want that, and he's saying, yes, I want that for you, and that's how you're supposed to live, okay? That is this sort of simultaneously mystical and yet totally mundane kind of spiritual life that we're all supposed to be living in. Um, living in the, in the vine means living in that kind of relationship with God. And you don't need Bluetooth with that. That's right. The, the Holy Spirit, that's why he said, it's good that I go away and the Spirit comes because it's going to enable this transformation where you can have this kind of life. And the, and, and the great thing is, is that Jesus says that his going away 
Like he's, he's speaking face to face with disciples that know him and they know his face. They know what his voice sounds like. They spent years with him in a face to face friendship. And he says, my going away and the indwelling of the spirit in you will be a promotion in how well you know me. You move from servant to friend. All right? you, you are getting a promotion in this transformation. So this life that I'm describing to you where you're immersed in his word, and you're praying to him is a more profound and more real relationship than if he was standing in front of you, talking to you as a normal person, okay? That's the transformation that that happens. Colossians 3.16 says this, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. The word is meant to live inside of you, to dwell in you, to dwell in you richly. And, and one of the things that really enables the word to dwell in you is singing his word. It's the reason why we are, the, the songs that we sing, we're not just trying to be weird, right? We're not, I know the rest of the church tends to do these praise worship choruses. We want psalms, and we want psalms set to music that we can go over again and again, and you sing again and again, and the next thing you know, you realize that it, it, in, it's in your head. That's what music does, right? It puts it in your head. It dwells in your head, and you have psalms rolling around in your head. That's what it's supposed to do. We're supposed to get to the place where the word lives in your mind, and you're hearing it, and it's making you want to talk back to God, talk to him about what he has told you in his word. And that's the life that we are being commanded to live. And the, the second category of the, the life that, that um, Jesus has described here is laboring to love one another, really working to actually work out this love that we have received from Christ to work that out to others. Now, remember, Jesus sets a very high bar here. Verse 12, this is my commandment that, I have, that, I, that you love one another as I have loved you, as I have loved you. Remember, forgive one another as you have been forgiven. Love one another as you have been loved. How have you been loved? Greater love has no one than this than to lay down one's life for his friends. Christ laid down his life for you as you have been loved. Now love one another. You're supposed to take that love and live like that to one another. So obviously a pretty high bar. The love that we're commanded to love one another is that sacrificial love. John picks it up again in 1 John 3.16. By this we know love, because he laid down his life for us, and we also ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. As we have received from him, we give to our brothers. And I don't think that we take this seriously enough. I mean, I know that there's a, there's a sacrificial love that we all um, intuitively embrace, but it tends to be sort of on a surface level, the 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 you know, the poster with a basket of kittens and a thing about love at the top. And we all say, yeah, that's, that's what I'm like. I, I believe I agree with that. But when it comes to actually living that out with one another, I don't think we take seriously enough the obligation that is on us to actually pursue real, true love with one another. Um, we have a way of dosing our difficulties with others um, via distance, so what, what happens is we live in a world where on the superficial level, we believe, we agree that we're supposed to love one another. But when you get into a position where 
you're legitimately bugged with somebody. There's a real tension, and, and, and real animosity has, has grown, okay? So that there's real true friction. You will feel a natural inclination to kind of just pull away, and the way our culture works, it enables that really, really easily. You can just separate yourself from another friendship in, in such an easy way, Right, um, but uh, and and it's usually like you put a little bit of distance there, and then and then you sprinkle onto that distance a little bit of forgetfulness. Right, that person, there's real animosity, there's real tension, so you separate a little bit, and all you have to do is just pick a, a schedule where you no longer overlap with each other, and then you cover that with forgetfulness. You just forget them. You forget that that even happened, and and that's how we tend to cover over um, tensions and difficulties. We don't, when we, when we see the friction, we don't think, I need to die for this person. I need to love this person. I need to put real effort into restoring uh, this, this relationship. But, but John says this in that 1 John 3.16 passage, by this we know love. By this, when we love like this, then people can know what love really looks like. As he tells us here in John 15, when we love sacrificially like this, it becomes a testimony to the whole world that we actually are indwelt by a, a love that is transcendent, that does not come from ourselves naturally, right? We're indwelt by another kind of love. So if we have a problem, we, we put in some distance and then sprinkle that distance with forgetfulness. But very rarely do we actually confront and deal with our problems. But the love of Christ pursues and restores. It pursues us and restores us. And, and you should be thinking, where, who in your life are you running from? Who are the people that you ought to actually pursue this kind of love with, this kind of sacrificial love? When you can restore that relationship by living this out, you become a testimony of the truth of the gospel. Now, you, you know the expression, um, this is the life. Right? This is the life. We use, you use that on vacation, right? Um, in, that, in that rare moment when everything comes together with family, with friends, with a perfect meal and a great sunset, right? If all those things happen at once, then you go, this is the life, right? This, this is it, and I, and I love this moment. This is the life. But Jesus gives us the recipe for that life, that life at all times, that life on a far more profound and real level, the real true life that is in him that flows through that vine into the branches that is the love that, that blossoms into eternal life. He's giving us the recipe for that life right, right here. You live in the word, live in the word, and you love one another. And when you live in the word and you love one another, then that is the life. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the gift of your Son, for the life that he gave for us on the cross, and for the love that compelled him to do so. We thank you for his life, and we thank you that his life is ours. Father, we, we ask that by the pouring out of your Holy Spirit, would you fill us with this life, fill us with this love, that we might overflow with this life and love to the world around us. Father, may you be glorified by our obedience in the week ahead of us. May our love for others testify of your love for us. And so we pray as your son taught us to pray, saying, You are what you eat. This is much more than a trite piece of nutritional wisdom. It is a thoroughly biblical principle. To partake of food in the Bible means that you are identifying with that food in some way. You are incorporating it into your own body and making it part of yourself. 
and in making it part of yourself, you become like what you eat. This can be for good or for ill. In 1 Corinthians 10, Paul warns us against eating food that we know was sacrificed to idols because to partake of such food is to become participants with demons. To eat demonic food is to become demonized. But it also goes the other way. Speaking of the Old Covenant sacrifices, Paul asks this question. Are not those who eat the sacrifices participants in the altar? In other words, the one who eats the animal sacrificed on the altar is to be identified with that animal. In the act of eating the sacrifice, the worshiper himself becomes a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. In this meal, what is offered to you is the body of Christ. Christ, who is our perfect sacrifice, nourishes and sustains us by his spirit with his own body and blood. As we partake of his sacrifice, we become living sacrifices. As we partake of his body, we become his body. As we partake of Christ, we become more and more like Christ. You are what you eat. So come in faith and welcome to Jesus Christ. Well, the charge is this. Abide in Christ. How do you do this? Come to church every Lord's Day. Pray with your family. Partake of the Lord's Supper. Confess your sins. Abide in Christ and ask him to bless all of it. Ask him to bless it. Uh, Receive now with believing hearts the blessing of your God. Now our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God, even our Father, which hath loved us and hath given us everlasting consolation and good hope through grace, comfort your hearts and establish you in every good word and work. And amen.